Welcome to Manchester City's official podcast. I'm your host, Rob Pollard. I'm delighted to say that on today's show, I am in conversation with Nader Manua. Nadam came through City's academy and went on to play 116 games for the club. I wanted to talk to him about his childhood, his time in our academy, his professional career, which also saw him play for Sunderland, QPR and Rail Salt Lake, and his work now in the media and as host of his own podcast. Honestly, it was such a pleasure to talk to a man who is so widely respected across this football club. So here it is, my conversation with Nader Manua, and we start by discussing his new role as a trustee on the City in the Community Board. I'm, I'm absolutely ecstatic, to be honest. I think um, given sort of my journey as a, as a person, as a player and so on, and having seen the city and the community stuff from way back when to see where it is now, I think for somebody to reach out to me and say, we'd like to have you on board because you think we think you can do this and we think you can do that, like, it's, it's, it's perfect. Like, Manchester is home to me. City is, is my club. And to see the influence that they've had in the community already over the years and to see what their ambitions are, to be asked to sort of try and help that go to the next level again, like it suits my personality and they want me there. So it's absolutely fantastic. What is it specifically that really want, made you want to get involved with this? Um, I think it's the, it's the way that like, you can try and affect as many people as possible and in a way which isn't just designed for you to gain something yourself. You know, that sort of sense of selflessness is... It's kind of what I'm about. I think as far as sort of my mantra goes, it's just like to add value, to add value, not to necessarily have to gain something or take something from somebody. Like I, I'm, I'm more of a giver. I like to sort of take in people's surroundings, take in people just as people in general and see how you can bring something to them to make them feel happier. Because, you know, when everybody is happy or everyone's feeling positive, you know, you can have some great experiences in life. And I think the way that charity works, they definitely do a lot of that. And they understand that not everybody's going through the best of times at any particular moment. So to be asked to be on board there and to see how we can try and affect people in a positive manner, like that, that suits me more than anything. It strikes me that maybe your background growing up, um, where you grew up and, and, and being involved with City for so long really kind of links really well to this project for you, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does, yeah. Like, through pure circumstance, like I lived in Mars Platin uh, for six, seven years, I think it was. And at the time, I didn't realise it was going to be like a, a stadium that's like two minutes away for for City. But I grew up there, then I was in Harper Hay. But all the while, like I was travelling around the city, I was seeing family in Bezzy, wherever. Like I saw the city, the city was mine. Like the city, this Manchester is my home. So I understand how certain areas work because I spent a lot of time there. I've got friends spread all around the city. So um, in terms of somebody who could maybe understand the city, like... I think I can definitely be that guy. Obviously, things have changed across the years, but I'm also excited to get back in there and see what things are like now in all those areas which I used to go to. So I think that does go, that potentially goes a long way. I'm going to make sure that from my side, you know, it's seen as a strength and it's something which I add to the, to the whole conversation. So you grew up in Miles Platin. Yes, sir. How did, you know, what was life like there for you as a young person? Uh, for... Um, as a guy who had previously moved over from Nigeria uh, with their family in an area which had no black people in it whatsoever apart from us in our house uh, and Mouse Platin itself which overall has not developed that much you know we look at Ancoats now and we say oh it's a nice trendy place you go further up the road the house which I used to live in is exactly the same as it was the street's exactly the same so it wasn't the best but it was all we knew 
you know, we didn't know the layout of the city, didn't know how everything else was. So we did our best. I think that's the big thing for us in that time. We did our best. Like there were times when we were being burgled by neighbors, times where cars were being set on fire, you know, other bits of violence and stuff that were going on. But we did our best. We stuck together as a family and we just tried to uh, just continue progressing. I read about the burglary incident. Um, it happened to me twice when I was younger as well, but I didn't walk in on the burglars mm. in the same way that you did. <clears throat> What's, what was that like? As I think you were nine at the time. Yeah. That, that must have been quite something, really. Yeah, it's insane. So I've got a daughter now who's seven. And I think in two years' time, would you be able to deal with coming into a house and seeing people that were basically burgling her space, her house? Because you, that's the thing about robbery. Like, it's your home. You should never expect to see somebody in there who, isn't, who hasn't been invited. So that was like... That was crushing, especially because I had my sister with me at the time. Who, I think she was six, because we used to walk back from Miles Passing Primary, which isn't there anymore. But pff, terrifying. That's probably one of the most scared. That's the most scared I've probably been in my entire life, and I didn't know what to do. Right, me now, logical person, figure stuff out, fight or flight over certain things, front foot, going for it. As a nine-year-old, petrified I was, absolutely petrified, and. The good thing was the fact that neither myself nor my sister were hurt by those people. I ended up just fleeing and leaving, but you should never, I'd never wish that upon anyone, especially upon anyone's kids, because as I say, it's just, it's awful really. It's not how it should be, is it? No. So you're a young guy in Miles Platin. What sparks an interest in football for you? Um, so it's from going to school actually. Uh, so I ended up, I left my school actually in year five to get into my secondary school, but I was playing for the school's football team maybe a year early or something because he says, oh, he's, he's good, he's a good player, all this stuff. So he says, yeah, you should try and do that. And he gave me um, a sheet of paper with the name of a coach at AFC Clayton. He said, oh, you should call this, you should go and try and play for them. Because at the time, like, I'd play football and, like, I might go and play on the field with, say, some people I went to school with and stuff. But I said, yeah, you should try and do that because it said I was good. So I went and did that. And then before I know it, I was playing Saturday and Sunday, playing for my age group and the age group above, having two completely different experiences, by the way, because for my age group, we were winning all the time. For the older age group, we were losing all the time. But I loved it. Absolutely loved Prepares it. Prepares you for professional football. Essentially, it? yeah. Like, it was, it was very humbling to go to an awards, that, an awards do, and on the biggest wins of the season, there's the same, there's the same team, because they're the only two wins you want, the only two wins you had. You won 7-6 and you won 4-3. They're the two biggest wins of the season and the only ones because the other ones were losing like 10s, 9s, 11 ones and all that stuff. While also the other age groups being called out and you've got like top goal scorer, most man of the matches, most this, most that. Like it was, it was a hell of an experience. But like I say, I loved it. Like it was tiring, all that stuff, but I loved it because football, like especially at that young, those younger ages, you're just playing with your friends, aren't you? And that's what it always was for me. It wasn't necessarily a case of I'm desperate to become a pro or anything like that or I'm hoping I get scouted. I just love that feeling of arriving on those fields, putting on that white kit to go and play in that game with my friends and just to see how it goes, which was incredible. Yeah. When did you realise that you were probably good enough to, to get a career in the game? Oh, that's, that's a good question because you can frame it in many different ways. So in terms of getting a career in the game, I was always somebody where key milestones, whether it was 14 to sign a contract, just play till 16 or 16 to get the youth team contract or whatever, like, it was never really a debate if I was going to get one. You know what I mean? There were certain people where it was, but for me it never was. So I was going through that process and I was one of the best players in my team and I was playing the age up and I was one of the best players. 
but it was still never a case of being on a guaranteed path. But then even still, you make it into a first team and you play your first games. But I had a very humbling experience because in the space of like three, four weeks, out of nowhere, I was on the bench for City versus Chelsea in 2004, where Chelsea lost, or City won. And that was the only loss of the season. I was in college, got a win bonus that was more money than I'd ever like received in my whole life. Then played against Arsenal in the League Cup. I'm like, okay, I've just played a game. I'm like in there now. And I remember watching Sky Sports News and it said myself and my friend Jonathan Delay were going to be keeping our places for the next game against Newcastle. Travelled up to Newcastle. I was left out of the squad and I was sitting in the stands amongst the fans. So I was like, okay, so maybe I've not made it yet. But then, as I say, time passes, you play more games. And I think it was probably at the end of that first season where I played the last 10 games of the season, which ended up with us playing Middlesbrough to try and qualify for the UEFA Cup. And I played well in that stretch, got young player of the year, all that stuff. I think that's when I probably thought, like, this is... Solid. This is solid. Yeah. Like, I still had to do my A2 in business, I think it was, the next year. Uh, but, like, I'm expected back in for pre-season to be part of a conversation to be playing in the next season. So I think that's when it felt like this is real now, as opposed to, well, you never know which way this could go. When was your first City game as a fan? Can you remember? <sighs> oh. Do you know what? I think it, the first time I went to Main Road, was it? It was in the Academy Times. I think it was in the Kipax, but I don't remember it was against. So the Academy Times was in Platt Lane. Platt Lane, yeah, yeah. Platt Lane, yeah, yeah. But um, like, looking back, my story as like a City fan and stuff is so like nerdy because when they used to train at Platt Lane, I remember having the autograph book and sticking my hand through the flipping the thing, saying, "Oh, can you sign this for me? Can you sign this for me?" Then going to the Kipax and. Well, to be fair, there were two sets of season tickets you could get from the academy. You were either in the the main stand, like family stand, or you were in the Kipax. The Kipax was like the highest point in the history of football where you'd get the tickets. But then the other stand, you'd have pillars in your way and stuff like this. So there was probably some of those. But to be fair, the one which sticks out in my mind the most, and this is for the wrong reasons, was for some reason academy tickets when we played Millwall were in the north stand. I remember sitting there with my mom as chairs were being thrown towards my head. So that one registers the most yeah. because I thought, right, how have we ended up here? This is pretty intense, yeah. And you were a ball boy at Main Road as well. That's I didn't right, realise. Yeah. Do you remember what game that was or what period? You know, it was a, yeah, it was, um, it was a season when we were in, uh, what was Division 2? It was that season and the next one. Um, and you did every game at Main Road? Every game, yeah. Wow. Every game, yeah. That's, that's just what it was. But some of it I did because we could get an extra ticket for the game as well. <laughs> so my mum could go to the games off of the back of uh, me doing that. So it was, it's probably not the easiest time in the world to have been a City ball boy because I remember there was one game, I think it was either against like Rochdale or Berry or something, we're losing 2 0 at home and I'm nearly in front of the North Stand, like gravel destroying my kneecaps. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, this isn't ideal. And the atmosphere at Main Road in those days yeah. wasn't... It was pretty toxic at yeah, times, Yeah, it certainly could be. Yeah. It certainly could be. Because like, some of my peers, like, they were sitting on a stool in front of the Kipax. I'm kneeling in the gravel in the north stand. So, I, heard, I like, I heard it all, saw it all. But it was, it was overall, it was a good experience, especially, like, I think the year after was a point when I was ball-boying for Sean Wright Phillips in the Youth Cup. And like, even though he's playing for the first team at the time, like the Youth Cup as an academy player is something which you strive to play in. So to see somebody who's made it be playing in that and knowing that you're not too far behind that and getting a feel for what it's like to play in a stadium because until you come in full time and if you're doing well, and unless you're doing well, you won't touch that, you won't touch a stadium. 
but then it's like, well, this is it. This is what I want to do. So that really does work for a young person in academy. If you see yeah. Sean Wright Phillips or for the lads now, they see Phil Foden. Yeah, that yeah. makes you think, hang on a minute. 100%. Like it's, 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 there's a path. Like Phil Foden in some ways is a one of one, but it's a path he still came from the academy. You can have the belief in yourself and you can believe that it's going to happen, believe that it's going to happen because somebody's done it before. You know, we can call it like the four minute mile theory or whatever. You know what I mean? It's, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Happens. And now people believe it can happen. So they prepare themselves to try and make it happen. Yeah. You know, so seeing anyone from an academy, like say, be a ball boy, be young in the academy, seven, eight, nine, be a ball boy, play for the EDS, play for the first team. Like if you're on that same path as them, like, why would you not believe that it can happen to you? Wembley 99. Mm. You were there. I was there. And you left Not early. for all of it. I was going to say. Not for all of it. So you you were, you were gave up, because it, it well, obviously... It, it rightly looked, so as well, by the way. It looked bleak. It looked bleak. Beyond bleak, yeah. It looked beyond bleak. I don't think there was that much going on in the game that should realistically have made people think that this is the right decision to make to stay in the stadium. Yeah. But... Yeah, I was just I was with my mum again and you know, we just started going down the steps as the first goal went in from Kev, I think it was. And uh, you know, at that point you make the decision, do you stay in or do you go? But at two one, after as I say, it's not been the best game, and you're already in stoppage time. I wasn't a believer at that point. Mm. I didn't see anything to make me think to believe. And to be honest, the big Mac had afterwards during the <laughs> extra time and stuff, it probably tasted better than uh, than sitting <laughs> in the seat itself, yeah. So let's talk about that academy period just briefly. Was, was there anyone in particular from your moment of joining City's academy? And you joined just as it got academy status, I, yeah, I believe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, up until your first team, which we'll obviously come on to. Was there anybody in particular? I remember Jim Cassell was big in the academy at that time. Was there a particular coach or figure around who really, really, you feel like you owe them quite a bit? So Jim Cassell, interestingly, I think I was the first signing when it became an academy. And it was Jim Cassell that brought me on. And Jim was somebody who, say, I ended up being close with my mum and dad and stuff were close with throughout the entirety of his time there. So he was key. Like, the club, or the academy, went from, in the first two, three years, we're getting beaten regularly by this team, that team, and so on. By the time we're leaving it, like, we've lost two games in, like, three years. So he, I think he, him being at the helm for that change is very, very significant. In terms of coming in full-time, a lot of, sort of, time, credit, and all that stuff goes to... Frankie Bond, Alex Gibson, because they like they were there when we were becoming men as such because we came in full time and they were they were tough guys. These were tough, tough guys. But you know, it kind of it grounded us in those years when I was in the academy, like uh, from when I came in full time at fifteen, sixteen. Like I enjoyed those more than any because we're all in this together all the time. When you're younger, some of the time, it's on a Tuesday, it's on a Monday night, it's on a Wednesday night, it's on a Sunday. But when you come in full time, like those guys make you into men and prepare you for what's to come, what's to, what is to come. I think it's no surprise that when they were in charge of the 17s and 19s, and to be fair, Asa Hartford as well in terms of the reserves, like the club just turned into a conveyor belt in terms of like talent coming through from people who weren't necessarily just purely talented. It was people who were talented, who were like tough, committed hard workers and stuff like this and I think they were very good at bringing out those characteristics in you. There were so many who yeah. made it into the first team weren't they? Now 
clearly City's first team then there were probably more opportunities mm. but we still brought through I mean Jim Cassell probably oversaw 25, 26 players who got into more. the first team yeah possibly more like in terms of people who played at least one game for the club yeah. I think there's, there's probably more than that but that's the that was the feel at the time like as I say you come in and it's like even from my team in the end so we've had myself Casper Schmeichel uh, in terms of my age group Jonathan Delaye played Stephen Island obviously played um, Shalem Logan played yeah. I think he was a year below uh, but that's just from one team you know that's literally from one team and lots of other people went on to have careers as well but it was, it was incredible like that experience in the academy like it was as good as good as it comes as good as it comes especially because for us like we were a big group of Mancunians those people I was playing with they were the ones who were handing me beatings when I was younger, playing for my Sunday league team. Yeah. So I remember Nathan and Jonathan, the twins, like who I'm like best friends with to this day, because they had to be responsible for beating us 10, 11, one every single time. And to give us credit, we always scored one. We always scored one, so never take that away from us. But it was a good bunch of guys who all shared a significant history together and all loved being there and it was competitive, but it wasn't, um, wasn't like disruptive or negative or taking away from anything from anyone which is what made it such a great environment, why people like Stephen Allen and stuff and Mark Laird and so on, they'd, they'd all fit into that culture. And it was incredible to be there. You mentioned your debut before, which was the League Cup game uh, against Arsenal, September 2004. Can you, how many of the teams do you think you could remember from that game? From that game? Mm, uh, the starting the start 11. There probably would have been a, a few changes without being too many changes. Yeah, that's what it was. There was just a, there was a mix. Uh, changing goalkeeper. Yeah, who Ronald Fortress. Yeah, see, I forgot about him yeah. until I was researching this. The so. best, the best thing about Ronald. Um, before that, keepers got the ball, kicked the ball. Ronald was like, "No, no, just give me the ball, just give me the ball." So in the same way we see like Edison and people now, Ronald's just give me the ball. He was a trailblazer. He was a trailblazer, <laughs> and crazier still, he was a two-footed trailblazer. Say, so give me the, give me the ball, any foot you want, no stress whatsoever. Like my mind was blown. Here's a goalkeeper that can do it all. So you yeah. got one out of one there, and that was the one I didn't think you would get. So. Well, yeah. So it was Ronald Waterus, um, left back, Michael Ball, Ben Thatcher, Ben Thatcher. Who them two sort of rotated yeah. in that position for a while, didn't they? Um, the rest of the back four, obviously yourself, and then who who were the other two? Playing it right, but Sunji High. It was Danny Mills. Danny Mills, okay. Interesting, interesting character. And then left-sided centre half was the great Sylvan Distani. We'll come on to because he was just Fantasy a phenomenal, incredible, yeah. phenomenal player. The midfield: Willow Flood, Jonathan Delaria, Jonathan Delaria. Two others, more senior players. Claudio Reyna? Sibierski. Sibierski off the left. Yeah. Uh, and our guest on Match Day Live this weekend, Trevor Sinclair. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. So uh, so it's Willow, it's Willow and Jonathan with Trevor Sinclair on the right, Sibierski on the left. Up front then, Samaras? No, Robbie, wasn't there, was Robbie he? Fowler. Fowler played, okay. Yeah. So interesting that team in a, in a sense, and and you came in there and you kind of got a taste of first team action, and then like you said before, you were then mm. sort of pushed back out. We we still kind of have that process with the first team yes. and and the academy here. Is that good for an academy player team? So you don't get too uh, carried away, maybe. I think a lot depends on timing, doesn't it? If you are next in line 
and you play, but then you just get pushed back out regardless, then that could be quite hard. Yeah. But if you're being given an opportunity, like for as good a city you've been in the League Cup over the years, they still do mix up the teams throughout, you know, to the point where it's frustrating for some people from the outside because it's like, oh, how can you play this player? How can you pick this team? Well, that's, that's what they do. They want to win it, but they want to win it as a collective. Um, I think, I think it can be good because if you've been nowhere near it as such, then just being in that dressing room, being told that you're, you're changing, being told to get ready for this game, doing the research on the opposition, like that's a big thing because you don't, you can only feel that when it happens. You know, you can prepare people for whatever, but you can only feel that those emotions when it does happen. So to get a taste for it, like it's incredible, it tends to leave you longing for more. And it also means that the next time you do it, you know what you can do better. So I think um, not necessarily like people can play long periods of time and so on and so forth. But, you know, if you're young, like a taste of it here, a taste of it there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever because it's still more than no taste whatsoever. Yeah. And then you can see around you, or even like if you play this game, the next game might be a sub. The key thing is looking around and seeing the people who've done it year in, year out how they do it, why they do it, and what makes a difference. And then trying to pin that to yourself to see what you can do to one day be in their shoes. And I think just being in squads and seeing that is, is absolutely enormous. I think as well, you came into a time with City when not the best period, but not by no means the worst either. Yeah. Um, but as a young defender, you had this done and done to look at. That's... No, it's not bad, is it, for a young player to come and watch those two? Because they were they were the bedrock of anything yeah. that was good for that period, weren't they, really? So in terms of centre-backs, I've enjoyed being around and seeing, like, I split City in two. And there was a point, like, Jolien, Lescott, Vincent Company yeah. was a partnership. Top. Saw it first time. Top. But Richard Dunn and Sylvain Distan, I feel the same way about those guys. Because around those times, they were special. You know, they were as captain material. They were essentially going up for City's player of the season, stuff like this. But as well with both of them, they're good people. They're like relentless in terms of how they train against you, how they play in games, stuff like that. And, you know, they, they set an example for me because, say, for the way that Sylvan was as a per is as a person, his style of play, top, Richard Dunn, same. And with Richard Dunn, like, unless his neck is literally hanging off, he's going to be playing in the game. If you were a sub to Richard Dunn at centre-back, like, you don't need to have your boots on. Because literally, unless there's a natural disaster and a tornado comes and picks him up you and throws him off, you're not getting on. <laughs> no. You're literally not getting on. And that level of like toughness is something which I would strive for for the rest of my career. And then, you know, I got the chance to play with them again when I was at QPR, and it's exactly the same. And so looking back, those two being there set the tone for lots of ways that I have certain feelings I have about football. And I love that because, you know, they could all play football but the very first thing is defender. Yeah. There's always the priority. And they defend from start to finish and be relentless. And I try to be just like that. And it's no surprise that, you know, I played alongside them and that's how I ended up being. What about the managers then? So, Keegan, mm. some former players didn't necessarily get on with Kevin Keegan, but a lot of players who, uh, most players I speak to who were with him just absolutely loved him, his mm. passion, his honesty and all that kind of stuff. How did you find him? I, re I really liked him. I really liked him. Like I would have liked to have met him when I was a bit older as well. Um, but I really liked him because he firstly gave me the opportunity. Like I didn't, I played more games under Pierce than I did Keegan, but Keegan gave me the first taste. And I was a lot, and I was training with the first team in pre-season and stuff like this. And he said, oh, you're good. And I want to make you better at this. 
So let's, let's try and make you better at this. Like he put me to right back to try and get better on the ball and so on. Which is a great move. It, well, yeah, because it's a position I hadn't played before, but then also he ended up thrusting me in there to be playing in games in, an, in the Premier League in an unfamiliar position. You know, like that's not normal, but it shows the level of trust that he had in me and he and, wanted to put me in. And it forces you to develop a different side of your game. And exactly, also yeah. as a centre-half, you get to learn how it feels to be a right-back, exactly. which, which helps. Yeah. Exactly. It was massive, yeah. So with that, like, I really like Kevin because he, he kept faith. He had faith in me from a young age. Like I started, my first game was at 17. You know, you don't have to do that. Like at the time, I, I, like that year, I was playing in the Youth Cup. I could have played another year in the under-19s. I could have spent two years playing the reserves. But he put me in at 17 because he believed in me. He saw what I could do. And he knew, and he thought within his head that like the ceiling's far higher as well. And I'm an asset to the football club. Um, and he had me next in line behind Van Distan and Richard Dunn. Obviously, it's the worst position in the world to be in because they're always playing. But it's also a great show of confidence to yeah. not think, well, we need to bring someone else in. It's like, this is what it is. So I, I really like Kevin Keegan, yeah. Yeah. Stuart Pearce, the football we played wasn't good. No. And, uh, but investment had, had dropped in, in his defence. Yeah. I don't think he was given maybe the, the opportunity to. Uh, but at, what, 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 was he, what was he like? So when he was when I, when Kevin Keegan was manager, Stuart Pearce was, would be the sort of goal between between younger players and the manager. So he he invested some time into us working on clearances, working on this, that, and the other. And then him as manager, you know, you look at the opening stretch, and you know we nearly qualify for the UEFA Cup. But then he brings on a goalkeeper up front in the final game. And to this day, I don't understand where that's come from. No. I, I, to this day, like, not, that should never have It's a bit embarrassing some... for City fans, I think, at the time as well, yeah. And it was a bit nuts for us as players as well. Yeah. Because, like, that was such a big game. Like, you could try and talk it down and say, it's no big thing, it's no this, no that. Like, no, that was, the, it was huge. huge. Yeah. And it was huge based on all the stuff that we did beforehand because we went on a good run of results to get to that point. So I think there was an element with, with Stuart, I think there was an element of like self-sabotage over certain things because maybe he wanted to be quirky, but then the quirkiness wasn't necessarily going to bring out the best in us. But then looking back, he also brought across, made Stephen Allen kick on, made Michael Richards kick on, made Michael Johnson kick on. You know, there was myself as well. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, he might have been right for the time, but for me personally, even though he gave me opportunities and so, opportunities and so on, I don't think he was brilliant. I don't no. think he was brilliant at all. Then, I don't think there's ever been a bigger jump in quality from the Pierce team to the Sven team, which is one of the reasons why that year with Sven, the fans, look yeah. back, they absolutely love it because yeah. we'd gone from barely scoring a goal, playing very yeah. basic football, to actually getting the ball down and playing. And West Ham away on the first day is one of the fans' favourite games because they didn't know what to expect. Yeah, and they yeah. started to watch really good football. And obviously yeah. you had a blinder uh, down the right yeah. in the build-up to, to the second goal that day. I mean, what was um, what was Sven like? Because I've met him a few times. It just seems like a wonderful human being. Is mm. that kind of like what, what he was like? Yeah, for, for me, it's exactly what he was like. And I think for most people, that's the same as well. And like you said, they've met him and he feels like a wonderful human being. Not everybody has that sort of sense about them. You know what I mean? Like, because you could talk about his profile, but his profile wouldn't make you think that he feels like a wonderful human being. But there's something about the way he carries himself, the way he introduces himself, the way he talks to you. You know, he's not he's not looking down on anyone. He's not hostile really towards anyone. He wants the best for you. He wants the best for the collective, and he wants to. He doesn't want to make your job any harder. Whatever your job is, that's required. You know, he seems like the type of person that will get a speeding ticket when he say, hey, yeah, that's fair, that's fair, yeah, thank you very much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's that's the type of person he is. So, 
I really enjoyed Sven because off the back of what came before, like it felt like the club had completely changed. Revolutionised, yeah. Bear in mind, obviously, there was a takeover that happened as well. Yeah, which put it into context a exactly, little bit. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But like, it felt like it completely changed because the emphasis was on playing good football. You, bring, you brought in Alano, my goodness gracious me, you yeah. know, Giovanni's, Martin Petrol's, Valerie Boginos, people like this. And like, when you look back at Sven, he was the first foreign manager in the Premier League for Man City, wasn't he? Yeah. So that was the first taste of what other clubs and so on had had you know, in terms of like a slight tweak of the non-traditional British way of playing. So he was brilliant. He tried to get the best out of every player again in a more attacking manner. You had players, you had more match winners on the field now. And, you know, you could have a level of grit, but it was the first time in my time of playing where it felt like we were playing really nice football and you look around and everyone's front foot and really enjoying themselves because it's not a case of like in the second half of the season before, you go out on the field and you're wondering where goals are going to come from. Now you go out and it's like, I'm sure Alano can do something. I'm sure Giovanni can do something. I'm sure this guy can do and something. People sure. wanted the ball, yeah, which yeah, was a big was, difference. Yeah. yeah, 100%, 100%, yeah. Um, it's interesting with Sven because you went and bought all those great players, but actually in that season, the best player was probably Michael Johnson yeah. and he was recently a guest on your yeah, podcast, right, yeah. which was fantastic and anybody who's listening to this should definitely go and listen to that because it was one of the most um, honest and revealing conversations you're going to hear around Michael in his career mm. but I mean I asked Sven a few weeks ago how good was he and he says you know he should have gone on and played for England mm. and Didi Haman said he was the best young player he'd ever played with and I mean Didi Haman had yeah, a very did, decent exactly, career yeah. exactly yeah. What, what, what do you think level wise where did he rank he didn't, it's crazy because that, in that year, people have great memories of him. But in that time, he never played as good as he could have, like, as you saw in training and stuff like that. And he was that incredible. And he was that exciting at the time. Like, he was 19 years of age, I think. Well, ahead of him, everything's, you know, anything could have been, anything could have been possible. But to do that, you need to be playing for years. You need to be playing week in, week out for years to be able to achieve that level of potential. Because otherwise, like, you could say potentially it's a flash in the pan and this, that and the other. And it's a shame because, you know, for many different reasons, as I speak about, as he speaks about on my podcast, like, things didn't quite work out for him. But then in some ways, I wonder if that was always going to be the case based on the foundation he had for football in terms of how he viewed it from a young age. Because this is somebody who was being trained from a very young age to just have the one goal of being a professional footballer. And when it's happening then, perhaps they didn't enjoy it as much as say other people were, because as I say, this is almost like the expectation, you know? Um, and it didn't, it didn't work out, but from a talent perspective, you, you just look at highlights from that season. He's involved in so many things and he's doing that alongside some of the best players as well that the club had seen for years. So. Yeah. I think that kind of sums up who he is. And I think that the same thing happened the next year when we talk about, like, Stephen Ireland, and that was his best season. Like, those two years, you look at Michael Johnson, you look at Stephen Ireland, and they were two of the best performers in the two years when the club had more money to invest in talent. Yeah. So that, for me, indicates how good they were. Because, say, Michael Johnson, you're looking at Alano's and so on, and Stephen Ireland, you're looking at Robinho's, but Stephen Ireland was one, and Michael Johnson was one in, the, in that spell as well. So... It was incredible, and it's a shame his career didn't work out the way that it's almost like we hoped it would for him. But that's football in itself, you know. Yeah. We always we always hunt the fairy tale, but reality very rarely provides that for us. How exciting was the takeover and Mark Hughes period, etc.? Because obviously, I mean, quite rightly, the Sven era felt like a, yeah. a big change, but 
It's a big, yeah, it's a big step to an even bigger step. But yeah. even 2008 was just yeah. changed everything. So what was that like to be involved? That must have been so exciting. Yeah, do you know what it was? But the weirdest thing about it was we started the next season with Mark Hughes, with the Lecoq Sportif kits, with this team, you know, trying to bring in this player and so on. And it feels like a continuation, really, on the year before. But then, bang, Rubinho's been bought out. Rubinho's here. Everything's changed. But then nothing's changed because the training ground's still the same and the players, 99% of the players are still the same. The staff's still the same, feels still the same. But now we're the richest club in the world. Richest club in the world, quotation mark, air quotes for anybody yeah. listening. Um, but it's like, you can't really show it and express it because imagine like how that would have felt. It's probably similar to now, say for example, in terms of City fans and stuff perceiving Newcastle. Newcastle interior, air quotes again, the richest club in the world. But the answer is like, well, so so what? Like, it takes time. It takes time. Regardless. At the time. It takes time, but when it happened to City, people were trying to take time away from City and say, well, they have to do this now, they have to do that now. Success is only going to be if they're here now, if they do this now. And now it seems daft looking back and hearing some of those things because they, those aren't the same sort of expectations being levied at Newcastle. So it was exciting because you didn't know what was to come and it sounded like the people were there and they were legit and they're going to be investing long term but then I was always a, for me personally I was a bit sceptical because look at the way the last takeover went exactly I think most fans were sceptical until we won the FA Cup exactly, I think that's yeah. when it was like right this is for real yeah there was always yeah. a fear that like the plug was going to be pulled or there was going to be some sort of disaster somewhere along the line I think some of that's just to do with being a long term City fan anyway <laughs> You know, it's, even when it's hard wired into, wasn't yeah. it? You're six nil up with six minutes to go, and you're like, "Well, it could finish six six You yeah. know what I mean? That's yeah. something's just within your head naively. But um, still, not fully gone for me. The same, 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 same. <laughs> Always expect the worst. Been delivered the best, objectively the best few years ever, and it's still like, yeah, well, I feel like it's just one one bad run away, and it's yeah. like it's all over. Yeah. It's nonsense. But like, I'm two sides of me, absolute nonsense. It's like, yeah, but no, it's nonsense. Um, but yeah, when it, when the takeover happened, Rubinho came, top quality, and Rubinho alongside Alano, top class. And I noticed at the time, Rubinho and Alano could be the best trainers, but they'd be the best trainers alongside Daniel Sturridge and Stephen Ireland. So even though we were going in that direction, you still had two players who came from the academy who were also very, very significant within that. Um, so it was exciting to see who was going to be brought in. Then there's a bit of like, you know, you read in the press, they want to bring this player in, that player in. And it's all well and good until they're playing your position. So then you're like, well, okay, so if they invest in this guy and bring him in, I'll fight, quotation marks, fight for my position. But it's not really a fight because you're not fighting anyone. Right? It's just a case of you hope you do enough to continue to be selected as the club is on an upward trajectory. But as far as football goes and to a certain extent life, like there's no, you, no matter how well you're doing, there's no guarantee that you'll play the next game. And when you just want to play, play and play and play, but you're hearing it being linked with this guy, that guy, and whoever. It can be a bit off-putting. But then when you start winning more games, when we, say with Sven, when we beat United twice, you know, little subtle flex, beat United twice, don't worry about that. It was amazing. But the expectations changing are exciting because for years we never had that with City. And, you know, more eyes were on us. And we weren't brilliant. But then that was the same year when we went on the, FA, the UEFA Cup run and we got to the quarter-final, which is one of the best experiences I had in my career. So it was, um, it certainly was exciting. There was uncertainty that was in the air all the time. But as we can see, looking back now, like there was no reason to feel uncertain because, you know, the people in charge are bona fide, aren't they? Was it when, when Mancini came in, and I know you had difficulties with him, but 
it, was the writing on the wall immediately, did you feel? No, no, no. Not, not, not straight away. Not no. straight away because it wasn't just me that couldn't get a read on him. It was everyone. Like, nobody knew what was going on at all. Everything was changing. Like, I remember you first came in, I think it was November time. So we beat, we beat Sunderland 4-3, I think, in Mark Hughes' last game. And yeah. I played in that game. Flash forward, fast forward two, three months, and I'm like not even getting into squads, but the team's the same. But I remember week one or two, you brought floodlights onto the training pitch and we were training at like five, six at night, which never happened. It, was, it felt like the dead of winter. Like, I was thinking, what is going on here? Everything had changed. Food had changed. The mentality in terms of training had changed. He was doing team shape every single day for hours on end. You came in and... Um, you came in in like October time or something. I didn't really play that much between then and the end of the season to the point where I missed. I didn't play in the League Cup semi-final against Man United home or away. You brought Dedrick. He's obviously a very good player, but at the start of that season, Dedrick was a substitute for the reserves. So everybody was playing ahead of me now. That was like quite demoralising. Um, the season finished and I was left out of the squad when he made like 10 changes to the squad down at West Ham crushed but yeah I knew it was up so I cried when I left and went to Sunderland came back from Sunderland did well there as part of the North Northeast team of the year got goal of the season for Sunderland um, leave that on there and um, then pre-season was about to start this is when I knew it was over it was a Saturday before pre-season starts on a Monday I got a text from Claire Marsden like the legend that is Claire Marsden saying, oh, don't come in on Monday, you're going to come in on the following Saturday. So I'm like, I was at Centre Parks with all my mates, so I thought, this is the best thing ever, we've got extra time off. So I thought, then I gave it a minute, I said, hold on, let me just check something. So I text Micah, I think Sean Wright Phillips as well, I said, oh, you guys come in on Saturday? He said, now we start Monday. So they trained from Monday through Friday and then left for America. And then myself and about four or five others came in on the Saturday mm. to train with the under-18s. And then at that point, he was like, right, what, what, what? So you must be, with the context of what you've just explained, to go to QPR and have six and a half years, three years yeah. as captain, yeah. on the back of an experience, and, and be really well received by yeah. everybody at QPR and the fans, that must make you pretty proud. That yeah, you've yeah, done yeah. That. yeah. But the QPR story is an interesting story because it gets better over time. So when I first went down there, like being a Mancunian, like I hated London, like and my experience as a footballer from Manchester about London was you'd get off the train at Euston and sit in traffic for X amount of hours before arriving at the hotel. You'd play in a game, sit in traffic for X amount of hours before arriving at Euston and traveling back up north. That was my London experience. It's too busy, it's too whatever. So now it's like, well, I got told, like, it's my first full transfer. I got told by one of the um, directors, I think it was Brian Miles, saying, oh, they've put a bid in. I was like, so what? He says, yeah, you've got to go down tomorrow. I was like, excuse me? Uh, yeah, you've got to go down tomorrow to speak with them. I was like, oh, okay, this is weird. So down I went anyway. Next thing I've signed, went down. And it was a time where they were investing in trying to stay up that year. And we ended up staying up that year. A pretty significant game uh, in 2012 <laughs> happened. Um, and then we had all the hope in the world going into the next season. And then we didn't win a league game for the first 15 games of the year, or something like that. So if you imagine the high of staying up to now the lowest of lows and not having a win. Like we weren't, I don't think we were even bottom at the time, but we hadn't had a win. And the club had changed its identity a little bit, but changed it too quickly. So you had people who'd won a Champions League playing with somebody who'd 
just this season left the championship for the first time with a fan base which wasn't used to seeing people who were trying to go all out to play pretty football. They were more seen, used to commitment and stuff like that. And commitment, yeah, quotes again for like big tackles, you know, headers, blocks, fights, all that stuff. So the chain club was going through a rapid change of identity and they were investing more money in people. So I was one of the people who they invested in. And when things weren't going well, they were coming for us first overall, unless we were playing lights out every single week, which clearly wasn't the case because we weren't winning. There was a sense of hostility towards a group of us because we were new to it. Like, you know, it's the sort of uh, last in, first out in terms of mentalities towards yeah. people. And we were definitely like, myself, Sean Wright, first a few others, we were getting some grief. Um, and we went down that year. The next year, we gained promotion. So now you hear us again. Terrific. The following year, we got down again. But at this point, I've been there for three seasons and people are starting to understand who I am. And then at the end of that season, like I did well enough that season, but then it's like, I'm going to make you captain. But being captain the next year after they stop the investment and the squads go from having players who've won everything to players who are now just coming through the academy, it was a tougher transition because yeah. now we weren't competitive in the championship. So there's a bit of stick being given there. But then in time, people understood who I was. And come the end of it, I've got all the respect, all the players who I played with respect me. But all those ones in those last three years really do because I was part of the transition to going towards the younger team. And some of the players are like Abere Eze's and so on who's gone on to play for Palace and all this. Like, Brad say Sammy was at Fenerbahce, Ilias Chair, who's gonna, probably going to be in championship team of the season. Like, I was part of trying to nurture that talent. And we were competitive, we were good. And it was a good atmosphere, it's a good time to be a player there. Fans understood us more and all that. I think I was a big part of that. And six and a half years was culminated in the last game of the season there. And I'm walking around the stadium clapping and everyone's shouting, Jeez. like hearing 20,000 people say something like that, based on some of the madness that came before. That, that was one of my proudest moments in football, but my word that I have to earn the right to get it. I was going to say, it sounds like it took a while. To it, it, took, it took a while, but the last, say, two years or so, I think when more people understood who I was from the outside, like from the get-go, people on the inside knew who I was, but the people from the outside, they finally got it, and they understood that like the intention was there, and I wasn't someone who was going to jump ship, and I was always somebody who would give 100% of everything to the cause, whether things are going well, going badly. And yeah, made it. They realised I was making a difference on the field and off the field. Finally, then your position now. Obviously, you're doing the city in the community yes. now, but the media side as well. Mm. So if I turn on Five Live, I hear you. If I turn on Sky Sports, I see you. We Some, obviously yeah. see you on Match Day Live. You seem well. to be uh, everywhere. Is that something you always wanted to do, or is it just falling upon you, or how's that work? Do you know when you say it like that, it seems like a lot, but it's not. And it's strategically not a lot. Um, so I, as I went to America uh, to play in the MLS, I maintained a relationship with a guy at the BBC because I'd done a couple of bits of radio for them and I enjoyed it. So I did a few things from over there uh, on like evening games and so on in England. And the plan was that when I would retire at the end of 2020, I'd try and do more stuff for them. So instead of like, retiring from football and having to now go and search for work somewhere. The fact was I'd been doing two things at the same time. So now I stop football, but now I do more of something else. Um, so the BBC radio stuff was good. And as I came back, he threw me into more work. And like one of the things that I like about working for the BBC, even though I'm essentially a contractor, is if you do one thing which they like somewhere, you're accessible to the whole thing itself. 
and I started to get a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of work to the point where for this season, myself and Steve Crossman basically have a two-hour show every Sunday during the season on Five Live, which I'm immensely proud of because like Steve Crossman's top draw and I earned the right to get that show. Absolutely. Um, so it wasn't necessarily planned to just like fully dive into media. And to be honest, I don't know if it's something which I'll be doing extra long term because one thing about football now is that I'm quite calm about it, which is a blessing right now. But at times, some people want like someone that's just going to like say, oh, that was the worst thing in the hit. Like, they love an overreaction. And you're absolutely never going to get an overreaction from me about anything whatsoever. Um, I think it's the Twitter era, isn't it? Yeah. You either have to be really extreme this side or yeah. this side. There's no room for kind of in the middle, is Some it? of the takes I've heard from the first week of this season to this point now, like teams have won and lost leagues three, four times over. You know, <laughs> yeah. and here it's October international break. Yeah. Um, so... I kind of wanted to do it and I enjoy the stuff that I do, but the stuff that I do is more thoughtful because there's more time to be able to express opinions about stuff instead of like quick takes, like here's a 30 second take on this and then we move on. No, we have a show, on the Say the Five Live show, which I really love doing and I work for ESPN as well on something similar. You could have, a, the producer could have 10 topics which they want to touch on, but we might only cover three. But then if you cover the three, the three you've covered are like great conversations yeah. and they're in depth. And that, that is the value itself instead of being on shows where you have to cover the 10. So I'm enjoying that. If it ever changes from that, I'll probably stop because I've, I'm lucky enough to have done things in my career to mean that the necessity to be in full-time work isn't there. So all the stuff that I do is because I want to do it as opposed to I have to do it. And um, I say, I think that that is a, that is a true blessing and I'm lucky because the, so I do stuff for ESPN BBC, The Athletic, The City stuff, obviously, and someone else, Sky Sports. Yeah. And it seems like a lot, but in a normal week, I've probably worked 10 hours. So you might see my face, but you might also just see me walking down the street with coffee man, walking out to Rancos. Wish I worked 10 hours. Listen, I'm in it, like, the charity's <laughs> been going for 35 years, and I'm 35 next month, so that's technically my retirement age where the pension kicks in. Yeah. So, you know, one day when you get older, you can have, you can experience this. So I can't wait. <laughs> and, and then just one final one, because your podcast, you're talking there about in-depth. Yes. That's exactly what the podcast is, isn't it? You get to sit down with people you know, people yeah. you've played with, and have really deep conversations. Yeah. That's something you're really proud of as well. Yeah, 100%. Sure. Like, there's this, um, not spoiler alert, but as far as people go, especially people involved in football, there's a difference between being told that you have media to do and saying that you want to do media. Because if you get told that you have to do it, you'll always ask, how long is it going to last? And you sort of, you don't base the schedule around it. You just add your schedule to it and then you do it and then do whatever. But with my show, for the people I reach out to, if they say yes, it's because they want to, and you can pick up that tone from the get-go. Because they're talking to me in a way where we're not talking about the overreactions of a week-to-week -week thing. It's not what happened last week. It's not what's going to come this week. It's like, how did you get here? And they have the floor to describe it however they want. And the stuff which they say, like, for me, I get it. But from the outside, you realise, like, just every little detail, like people hang on the every word of certain people's stories, like why did this happen, why did that happen? And I'm not pressing them into anything. And I think when you're that relaxed and you can talk, and at the end of the day, talking about yourself, I always felt as a player, it's better when you can tell your story instead of you having to read about it through somebody else. Because you'll never disagree with how you tell your own story. So there's so much insight in there about 
players, clubs, moments, games, like views on football, their storylines. And a lot of it, some of it is really inspirational, but every bit of it for me is like true and honest. And it's because you don't fear what you're saying because you're talking about yourself. So yeah, that's the, that's the, big, pull, that's the big pull for me. It is fantastic. And as I said earlier, every City fan should listen to it. So Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Nader Manua there talking about his life, career and his work with City in the community. A big thank you to Nader for giving us so much of his time and I hope that everyone listening at home enjoyed that conversation. I certainly enjoyed talking to him. Don't forget to like and subscribe the podcast if you're enjoying them. We will have full coverage of this weekend's game away at Brighton over on the official Man City app. Join us on Friday for Pep's press conference live. That's where we get all the latest team news ahead of the game. And then on Saturday, live text updates begin at 3.30pm before our Matchday Live studio show gets going at around 420 And City Plus subscribers, you can watch a full 90-minute replay of the game from midnight. Until next time, stay safe and look after one another. 